look at success around like the loss of my dad because I just wanted him to know that that we got to the other side. Our family struggled a lot in a lot of ways. And we're thankfully me, my mom and my sister are like, we're all okay. You know, we all have stable jobs and good careers. And I just kind of like for me, that feels like success that like we got to the other side. We we're okay. And so that just I wish he could see it. Like that's really that feels like success to me that I don't struggle anymore, that I don't, I know where my paychecks are coming from. I don't need, like I can put everything on auto pay, which again, I know is a deep privilege, but to me, like for someone who grew up in Norristown and, and didn't come from a lot, like that feels like success. So for some people, like they're like, yeah, I have a beach house and I have these, all of these great things and all this and that. Just for me, it's, it's the not having the weight of financial fear on my back feels like success. Because we're awesome and we're fun and we're very good looking. So I feel like... <laughs> like what? Okay, cool, bye. I like that, but I also... Oh, no, that's wrong. Welcome back to Angle, the podcast that talks about defining success and hearing the voices of the average shows that no one knows anything about that are doing lots of stuff every day. So we are super excited. We're here today with Rachel, who grew up with Tanuke. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, Rachel Semigran, uh, she, her. I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'm the director of Enrollment Marketing and Communications at Swarthmore College. I am a graduate of Drexel University for undergrad, and I got my master's from the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in London. I was a Jack Kent Cook scholar, so shout out to the Jack Kent Cook Foundation. They do great work. Yeah, so that's a little bit about my education and my career. Whoa, I think I just got dumber. Anybody else? Rachel is one of the most intelligent humans I know, I will say. <laughs> Like, if you need life wisdom, she's so, the one to disperse it. Whoa, how many degrees do you have? Just two. Oh, <laughs> Just my, my bachelor's and my master's. But quite frankly, like I often will describe myself, like my work ethic as a Lisa Simpson. Like <laughs> Tanuki and I were in all of our classes together, right? And the thing about it was we were in class with a lot of those like Mensa genius kids that were just things just came to them and they were super smart. And could take like an AP chem test and be like, yeah, I didn't even study and I got an A plus. Meanwhile, I was up until 1130 PM, like crying, just trying to memorize <laughs> the information. So like, yes, I'm like academically accomplished, but it's not because it's like, oh, it's some ethereal gift. Like, no, I cried a lot and it was hard. <laughs> Thank you for saying that for those of us who needed a little bit of a pick me up after sure. Lineup of cool shit. Sure. And mind you, I work at Swarthmore College and I I had the absolute pleasure of, you know, I work with the admissions office and I had the pleasure of sitting in and reading the applications of young people who are applying to get into college. And I was reading them. And these are 17, 18 year old kids. And I was like, oh, I'm a full idiot and I've done nothing with my life. So 
these kids, man, the kids are all right. They're going to, they're absolutely going to save us. <laughs> well, do you, I hope they do. Do you find that students come to you and you find yourself giving advice that you wish you had gotten as a student? Does that happen? I don't have quite, working in communications, I don't have quite as much interface with students, but I do stay connected with some of my alumni groups and through the Jack and Cook Foundation. And in those instances, I've been asked to give advice on careers and on schools. And yes, I definitely think some of the advice that I'm giving, I wish I had heard, particularly around right. what I like to tell students, particularly the Drexel kids, because I went to Drexel and I know that you feel like everything has to be so focused and you have to be so concentrated on your career. And that feeling when you're getting out of college of like every decision I make is like the most impactful, important decision I'm ever going to make. And so if I take this job, it's going to define the rest of my career. And I have to take the exact right job because if I don't take that job, then my dreams are broken. And it's like, that's not, <laughs> that's not it at all. <laughs> that's not how life works. Right. Yeah. That's some of the advice that I wish I had received. I also, funnily enough, my parents, like they never knew where this came from, this like straight A student, Lisa Simpson-ness, because it did not come from them. Like, <laughs> not that they didn't care, but they weren't like, Rachel, you got to get straight A's. Like that was not my parents. But my dad would always in high school, he would always like come into my room and be like, put your books away. Like you got to get, got to go schluffy, which is Yiddish for go to sleep. And I was like, wait, are you in New York too? I love this. Yes. My dad was a vet, very much Brooklyn. My father grew up in Coney Island. Yeah. So, which in Norristown was a treat. My friends had no idea what, what words were coming out of his mouth. But in any case, yeah. So my dad would always tell me to like relax a little bit more, like stop studying so much, have a little more fun. And honestly, he was absolutely right. I did the same thing <laughs> for the majority of college that I did in high school, which was like, I got to study. I got to get all the grades. And if I, cause if I don't like my world would collapse and it didn't because by the time I got to my senior year, I was like, all right, I took a ton of extra credits. I can just sort of like chill and relax. And so I didn't try as hard and I still got the same grades. So <laughs> If you are a very high strung like me, relax a little. You'll still get good straight A's. So that's advice that I wish I had. I wish I had taken that to heart more is to like relax a little bit more because if you're a straight A student and you get a B from time to time, your world will not collapse. Well, I'm actually glad you said the piece about expecting people to be so focused and so concentrated on their careers that they think there's nothing else at the end of the tunnel besides that. And if you don't do it, you're screwed because that is never true, like you said. And did you think when you first entered your undergrad, did you think you'd be doing what you're doing now? Because like, how would you say you got to where you are to begin with? Oh, no, absolutely not. I say that all the time. I'm like, if you would have told Rachel 10 years ago that she'd be working in marketing, specifically digital marketing and doing a lot of data analytics, I'd be like, you're out of your mind. <laughs> Mostly, like I was an English major. I was not at all involved in marketing. I don't tell my employer, but I never took a marketing class in college. It's fine. They know that they've seen my CV. Now on the internet, no. Yeah. The reason, I mean, the whole, so I was an English major in college, a theater minor, like total theater kid you know, spent more time in the dark of tech rehearsals than I did probably doing anything else in college. But I was very much 
the way that I found it there was because I went to Drexel and there was a co-op program. And so, so co-op programs are really, it's essentially you split your time between academics and internships in college and you get credit for them. You still have to complete the same academic credits, but it's a whole system where basically you get a lot of professional experience during your undergraduate time. So being an English major, you know, the only types of a lot of the writing jobs that were available through the co-op program were in marketing and communications because every agency, every in-house marketing field needs good writers. Every everybody needs good writers, but in any case, so yeah, so the the first one that I got was with the Live Arts and Philly Fringe Festival. I worked in their marketing team and did a lot with their publications and guides and this and that. So that was like a nice combo of my arts background and being a good writer. Um, and then my second co-op, which was definitely the most influential one, was with the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. I worked with their marketing and communications team in their publications, their website, calendars, events, things like that. And it ended up working out so, so great that I ended up continuing on as a part-time employee with them for, for quite some time throughout some of my time in college. I did some freelance stuff with them. And then when I graduated, I got to work with them as well. So that really kind of got me into the field was, was just learning by doing. And I had some really great bosses and mentors in that department as well. Shout out to Jeanette, Marissa, and Tiffany. And Danielle, they were great. And still, and I still stay in touch with all of them. And my boss, specifically at the PCBB, Jeanette, she taught me a lot of things that I carry with me now, particularly around setting professional boundaries. I remember when I first started working there, she had one young child was pregnant with her second. And she was like, I leave the office at 459. I go home to my family. I'm not going to answer emails on the weekends. I'm not going <laughs> to, unless it's an absolute emergency, I'm not checking my emails after five o'clock. And she set that boundary. And it was just something that I was like, oh, you can do that. Yeah. <laughs> you can set your own boundaries at work. You don't just. <laughs> so that was something that as I, you know, kind of matured in my career, if I got the sense, because, and I appreciated that, I appreciated that freedom. So I always got the sense from, from that experience that as I was interviewing for jobs or applying to different jobs, if that wasn't the vibe, if it was like, yeah, we expect you to Again. be available 24 seven. Then I was like, then I don't want this job. <laughs> Not my vibe. Good for you. Yeah. So that's, I mean, obviously you have to be flexible from time to time and there's always going to be extenuating circumstances, but overall in general, I try to keep those boundaries between work and home pretty firm for, for myself and my, my own well-being. But yeah, so I got into the marketing field via the Drexel Co-op. And then I took an opportunity through the Jack Cook Foundation because again, I did a ton of theater work and I had done some extra school programming with Parkway Center City High School and helping build an after-school drama program with them. And through that, I applied for the Jack and Cook Foundations. They had a, a scholarship called the Graduate Arts Award for graduate studies, specifically for people that were interested in the arts. And the foundation is very focused on providing aid for students who are committed to giving back to their communities. And it's specifically for students who have financial need it's not like the roads or the gates where it's like you could be the most rich and privileged person in the world and you'll get like a rose. <laughs> not all the time, but like it is open to that. Whereas the Jack Hancock Foundation is very firm on helping low-income, first-generation, very diverse, talented young young people. 
So they want people to have access. They do. Yeah. They're really committed to aid and access. And so I was lucky enough to be in the first class of their scholarships. And I ended up going and getting my graduate degree in applied theater from Central in London. It was an incredible experience, truly probably one of the most impactful years of my life because all this time later, I still go back to London every year to see my friends. My husband and I eloped there. So that place was, it was such an impactful and important time. It was magical. It was, it was honestly the most incredible time. I think back on it and like, I'm glad that I had one or two American classmates because like we'll text each other sometimes and be like, that happened, right? We did that. That was a thing that we did in our lives. <laughs> we lived in London and we studied the thing that we love and we got to be surrounded by. I was so lucky that I didn't have to work during because of the scholarship. It paid for my housing. It paid for my stipends and travel. And so I just got to be immersed in the thing that I love so much. I got to do, I did placements at the British Museum with the Old Vic's community branch. Like it was really just the opportunities that I got there were just unbelievable. Shout out to Selena, but Dr. Selena Busby, she runs the program and she is just one of the greatest people on earth. Like you're in her presence and you're like, oh, how did I get to be around somebody so cool? <laughs> Because she's just done incredible things. She's really committed to doing theater in places like prisons and community centers and just some of the people that are on like the furthest margins of society. She will find a way to make art with them. And she's just phenomenal. I love her so much. So yeah. That's beautiful, really. Yeah. I just truly an incredible time in my life. And I was all set to stay, but my father passed away suddenly two weeks before my dissertation was due. (gasps) So... My life in London ended very abruptly and I came home. Oh my God. So I like had a whole plan. I was like gone this trajectory of like, okay, like I'm going to do arts education and I think I'm going to stay in London for a year or two and I'm going to do what, like I had things in the works, things are happening. And then the proverbial rug got pulled out. So I booked a flight that night. You know, I had some wonderful friends that came and just helped me pack up my room and I just left. Oh my <laughs> and God. so, yeah, so it was after that was a period of time of kind of just readjusting. Cause when you go through an experience of trauma like that, everything recalibrates. You li- you're in a new life, you have new skin, you didn't ask for any of it, but you're there. So it was very, very challenging time. I moved back in with my mom to kind of help her also figure out what life is all of a sudden. And so we we went through that period together. So yeah, that first year was just about surviving. I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't give a shit what I was doing career wise. Like it just wasn't a thing that I was focused on. Like some of the best advice I got in that period was actually from my therapist who was like, P.S. Everybody should be in therapy. Just go to therapy. If you don't think for you. Yes. And to that statement, go to therapy. Just do it. <laughs> no one's above it. It doesn't mean you're broken. <laughs> Just go to therapy. But yeah. So, but she said to me, she was like, well, why can't taking care of yourself be your full-time job right now? Why can't healing from this be your full-time job right now? And I was like, oh, Jill. <laughs> Ooh, yes. She was right. And so I did that. I spent probably two years in my late 20s just... I was 25 when my dad passed. And so I was just like, okay, I'm just going to get better. I'm just going to deal with what I'm dealing with. And I was glad that I sort of had that to lean on, you know, because I think, again, we, 
Americans, particularly millennials, particularly because God, oh, you know, we all graduated into the recession and it's like, grind, 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 take whatever job you can get. Your employers right. are going to shit all over you and you just have to take it. And so I think like that, <laughs> it can be hard to be like, actually, I'm not going to care too much about work right now because I have bigger fish to fry in my life. And so I, I was lucky enough, another part-time job that I had had in my life was working at DeBruno Brothers as a cheesemonger. <laughs> That was like a part-time job that I had had um, after college. And they were kind enough to like let me come back and do like some part-time work with them. I picked up some freelance writing gigs and just kind of like kept my head above water for about two years. And then after about that time, I was sort of ready to like, okay, like let's get back into the, I don't know about the rat race, but to just get back into... Yeah, get the momentum moving. Yeah, to sort of get things moving again. So a friend of mine from college reached out. She was like, hey, I'm moving back to the Philly area. Do you know anybody that's looking for a roommate? And I was like, huh, funny you should ask. (laughs) And so the timing worked out. You know, she and I moved into a place together, 21st and Fitzwater. And we, yeah, that was, again, just like kind of this year of just readjusting, you know, living back in the city, um, having that social life again. I'm really involved. Well, I mean, again, not this year, but I've been involved. I've done improv comedy for like 15 years. So I got back involved with the comedy community and just kept up. I was a full-time freelancer for about a, a year and a half, two years in that period. And then I ended up getting a job at the University of Pennsylvania as a copywriter in their marketing department. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of what started my career in marketing and and specifically in higher education. Thankfully, again, I had all that experience with the Philadelphia Convention and Visitors Bureau. Like that really helped me prove that I had something in my portfolio in that world, in that sphere. And yeah, so I, I worked for Penn, the the College of Liberal and Professional Studies um, for about three years. And then I transferred over to Drexel University, my alma mater, at the, with the Goodwin College of Professional Studies. Go Dragons. Yeah, go Dragons. NCAA, we got whipped, but the men did. The women are a great team. National champions over and over. But in any case, I digress. <laughs> yeah. And so then I worked with Drexel. And that's really where I got sort of just thrown headfirst into the world of digital marketing. And thankfully, I worked, man, I worked with some that's I you work with really smart people in higher education. So I just worked with some absolutely brilliant people in both at Goodwin and at the the university's central marketing communications offices and just dove and dug into all things digital marketing, paid advertising, SEO, all the acronyms, PPC, you know, learned all of it and picked up on things and, and got really interested into it. And again, all of the data pieces were, again, had you told me, 10 years ago that I would be looking at data every single day of my career? No, but because <laughs> I was like, oh, math is scary. <laughs> no, but data's fascinating. It's it's actually just, if you're a writer, you're a storyteller and data analytics is just storytelling, but with numbers. And that's also advice that I give every single young person I meet is take a class in data analytics. Even if you're not, rem- if you, even if you don't think that it's something you're going to need in your career, I promise you the world that we live in, you need it. Take a class in it. Or if you're a professional, take a data analytics course. There are a million free ones online. <laughs> take them, have that I in your arsenal. Like, yeah. yeah. And I would, I would pay you to do my SEO. I, it is 
freaking gibberish to me. I cannot figure it out, which is so stupid. Let's connect. It's easier. I promise you, once you learn the basics, it's easy to apply. It's Google likes to intimidate you because they're changing their algorithm all the time. And like every time, every time the new algorithm drops, we're all like, all right. I know. Like, what am I going to, what am I missing out on now? Yeah, I know. But in that realm, so Google's whole thing is like, if you look at their mission statements, right, it's about like making the internet easier for the user, making search easier Mm -hmm. for the user. So that's their goal, right? And so in terms of SEO, like, just do the same. Are you making your website easier for the user? That is the eternal struggle in higher education marketing is as marketers and communicators, you're like, here's what the data tells me about what your audience is interested in, right? But then folks on the other side of the table are going to be like, no, we, this is what we think is, is the most important thing and what should be on our website. And then we're like, but it's actually this. <laughs> so Because that's what the users want. So listen to what they're telling you. So yeah, so that's, yeah, I worked at Drexel again for about three years. And I I started Swarthmore back in December. So yeah, I went from copywriter to communications manager to director in about six years time. Yeah. Wow. So then remind me how far from Philly Swarthmore is. It is 11 miles, approximately 22 minutes by train and 25 minutes to 30 minutes by car. Yes, Lisa Simpson, yes. I say that all the time in our materials. (laughs) Do you work in (laughs) Except a station at the foot of campus. Oh, that's funny. It's really very accessible. So (laughs) everything you said I noticed in almost every phase of every job is that there was somebody that really mattered to you and that someone had advice and that your mentors mattered, like shout out to this person. So I'm hearing like a big community lover in you and like your community matters. So would you say, or how much would you say your community played a role in your success? Oh, massively. Absolutely. Massively. And community means so many things. Like I definitely think academically, I always had like one teacher, one professor, one department head that, and thank God I had them. They were like, this kid's smart. Let me talk to her. <laughs> Mentorship is key. And mm-hmm. I, you know, Tanuki and I know we grew up in Narstown. Narstown was, it's not the easiest place, right? There's always a lot of like behavioral issues and this and that. And so you can get lost. There's a lot going on in Arsenal. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. you, you can really get lost in the noise of that place. And so when you had teachers that recognized your potential, that recognized your talents, that made all the difference. And the, the so in high school for me, that was John Doyle. Just Shout the most important. Like that man is family to me. He runs a, ran a theater in Narsetown for decades. English teachers ran the comm center. And like, he made high school my he made my safe spaces in high school, right? So like I worked on the newspaper and he was just like, look, if you're ever in a class and you just need to take a break, just I'll write you a pass, come sit in the comm center, like, you know, and we'll talk about philosophy. And you're like, okay. <laughs> and also, like he invited me to come work at Iron Age Theater Company just on the weekends. Like, hey, do you want to come be an assistant on my plays? Do, like, you like this stuff. Like, he just nurtured the things that I was interested in. I remember distinctly remember in high school. And again, like talk about like your social awakenings to things too. I remember in high, like I worked for the school newspaper and in high school at Valley Forge National Park, the KKK had a rally and I was like, shut up. Yeah. What? Yes. Wait, in 
Valley Forge Park in the 90s? Yeah, like 90s, early 2000s. Yeah. Oh, this is not a new problem. Like, <laughs> you know, this stuff has been I around. I mean, we do live in Pennsylvania. You know, no but I don't remember. Kentucky, but. Uh, I remember hearing about this. Well, it was not a, like a huge, I found out about it because I was like, also, I was a straight A student, but also into punk. So not actually a punk, but I, <laughs> I thought, I thought I was cool with my dyed hair and my plaid pants, but I was still like, I'm in student council and I have straight A's, which is not punk at all. But so I found out about that through like the punk community and people were like, obviously all up in arms, which was so funny. That was actually, I remember the first time I heard the phrase Antifa, we're really going on some tangents here because it was like, yeah, anti-fascist and like punks. That was like a big thing with punks, right? So anyway, long story short, John like took the weekend, went with me to Valley Forge Park. He took pictures. I wrote about it, went into like the school newspaper. We did like on the local public news, we did a feature on it. And so John, he really not only nurtured my theater mind, but he also nurtured my like social consciousness in high school. And then, yes. yeah. And in college, Dr. Abiose Porter of the English department, he was my mentor in college. Again, I took a class of his on post-colonial literature and he pulled me aside. He was like, I've been waiting for you to take one of my classes, Rachel. I was like, because he was the head of the department at the time. And I was like, scared. I was like, oh, what have you heard? He's like, no, I've just heard you're a really great student. And I've been looking forward to having you as my student. I was like, oh, thank you, Dr. Porter. <laughs> and then I just, you know, he would have office time with me once a month. And even after I graduated, I would always go back every few months and we would have lunch together. And he would just ask me about my life. He wrote my letters of recommendation for graduate studies and was just very present and in my academic life. Um, and, and he and I would always talk about the differences between around being smart people and being around intellectual people. And, and that was always such a differentiator. And so we like to talk, you know, we're like, yeah, let's, let's talk about the intellectual stuff, not just smart stuff, but intellectual stuff. And so that really nurtured mm-hmm. that for me. Yeah. And then in graduate school, Dr. Selena Busby, she was just so wonderful, so nurturing. The, the thing that I remember about, because I was between going to Central and to NYU, those were the two programs that I got into. And she called me and she was like, we got your application and we, I just want to make sure that we're right for you. We think you're right for us, but I want to make sure that we're right for you. And that meant a lot to me, that personal connection. And she was like, like, I remember you said this in your essay and this part of your application. I'm like, oh, she's quoting things. Like she read this application. She cares. Yeah. yeah. And she just, she was, when I lost my dad, she was immensely helpful. She did everything in her power to make sure that I graduated on time. She gave me all the extensions. She like pulled all the strings because she wanted me to graduate with my class and she wanted me to be able to come back and finish, like to get to the finish line. So she got me to the finish line by her good graces. And it was honestly actually really helpful to have something else to think about and to work on while I was in like deep grief. And so, yeah, my dad passed September 3rd and then December 12th or December 10th of that year was when I flew back to London and walked across the stage and got my diploma. And so just, yeah, these people that are the older adults that I could really look up to and were very nurturing and just, again, there's just people that when they see your potential and and they help you along the way, it, it really made all the difference. And I've been, again, really fortunate in my career to have great bosses and great managers. And I, that's why I firmly believe that 
you interview them as much as they are interviewing you and to trust your gut. And if they're not somebody you want to work for, then you don't have to work for them. Drexel was a really influential experience. And I had a great boss, Tim, and he really helped me. Like he just believed in my abilities. Like there were things I was like, I've never done this before. And he's like, well, I hired you to do it so you can do it. And I was like, oh, right. So he just, we had freedom to try things to fail and to figure it out and figure out solutions. And so even just having people in your career, in your life that just believe in you, it makes a huge difference Mm. in your actual ability to do things. Right. I definitely agree. I think when it comes to new projects or taking on new challenges, there's so much doubt that can find its way into any person's mind. And that's why we have teams that lift lift us up, but also having those who are our bosses, who we look up to, those who are (laughs) and in a level where they might be in charge for them to say, hey, we trust you with this, which is why we brought you into this fold. It makes a world of difference. It's so lovely to hear you say that, Rachel, because I think especially now there are a lot of people who are finding adjustments in their jobs or dealing with new things that the pandemic has required. Maybe it's virtual teaching for those who are in education. (laughs) Maybe it's navigating 10 Zoom meetings a day. But it's just so nice to hear you say that because this year has provided so many unprecedented challenges. And it's lovely to know that in these different work communities that you've had these people who have believed in you, that you've had these positive and supportive exchanges and interactions and experiences. What I would love to know more about is If you could describe your thriving work environment or one that for those who are listening are looking to find, what are some things that you would recommend people look for in their search for finding the right job or the right work environment? Oh man, I would say if you're figure out if your manager has anything to hide or not, they should be very comfortable if you were to say, Hey, would it be all right if I reached out to to one of these fellow employees that ask about your management style and ask about working here, if that's like a big red flag, no, then like they've got something to hide. If your manager's nothing to hide, then be like, yeah, absolutely. Talk to all my employees that whatever they're going to say about me, they're going to say about me. And it's hopefully it would be a good thing because I, it is very true. Oftentimes people don't leave jobs. They leave managers, they leave bosses. Not always the case in my career. Again, I've, I've been really fortunate and lucky to have great managers and mentors, uh, mostly which is about growth opportunities for me. But I would definitely say that that's an important thing. There are also certain keywords, certain phrases that especially if you work in marketing, be mindful of. If they're like, we're a family here, it's like that means they're going to abuse your boundaries. And use all of your time, right? Yes. And I remember interviewing for a job. I was pretty early out of college in that space. Like, I got to take a job. I got to take a job. And I remember interviewing with this person who made it very clear, like, yeah, like I take the girls out to lunch all the time. We get our nails done together. And it's, it's such a, but the way that it just, to me sounded like a control thing, right? Like I do these things for you and Mm. then I can have no boundaries when it comes to work life. So be mindful of those types of, like if boundaries are really important to you, then pay attention to language, pay attention to the way that they talk about the culture of a place. And also too, the if we're talking about an ideal workplace, look at the full benefits package. 
beyond your salary. Because I personally, that's smart. To me, a value of an organization is paid parental leave. I don't have children. I'm, it's not in my current life. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not a thing. But I still think that paid parental leave is really important and, and it tells you a lot about the values of a place. So if they offer you a great salary, but you're like, oh, they don't offer you any paid parental leave, what is that telling you about the place, right? What kind of leave do you get? What kind of bereavement leave do you get? What do you, higher ed is again one of those industries that a lot of people stay in it for a long time because of the benefits, right? Like I've worked at places where they have benefits where like if your parents get sick, you can take time off to take care of them and they can get on parts of your benefits if X, Y, and Z things happen. And and so I think, again, that feels like such an American thing, but sadly it is because we don't have universal health care. We don't have universal child care that unfortunately you depend so much on your employer for your quality of life outside of work. Right. Yeah. Which right, is a problem. Right. But at the very least, you can look at that as a barometer for what kind of a place you want to be working for if you're an American. If you live in a place that has universal health care, don't leave. <laughs> don't leave. <laughs> <laughs> Just stay there. I visited a friend in New Zealand, my dear, dear loving roommate, flatmate, Sam Mannering, who is a brilliant chef. Follow him on all the things, get his cookbooks. I visited him in New Zealand like two years ago and I just, I should have stayed. I just should have stayed. <laughs> Things we learn in hindsight. <laughs> they seem to have their act for sure. Yeah, it's weird what happens when women are in charge. Podcasts <laughs> <laughs> are, are an audio medium for the audience. I rolled my eyes. <laughs> so those are the things that I, I think are good, good to look out for in your career when you're interviewing at places in general. That's, that's kind of what, what I keep my on and to just trust your gut. Oh, trust that gut of yours. There have been times where you're like, Oh, on paper, this job sounds good. But then I went into the room and it felt awful. Trust that. <laughs> you know, we have intuition for a reason for sure. Well, do you, it sounds like you really own what you do and you have like a very confident air about you. And I'm wondering, having gone through such a trauma with your dad so early and before you've even done school and you're on this journey and you're like, ah, roadblock, where would you say your strengths changed? Like, I know you recalibrated and you chose to heal and everything, which was really, really smart of you to do. But was there like a point where you realized what you were really good at based on an experience? Did something like go, oh, light bulb? Yeah, that's a great question. And the confidence thing that ebbs and flows, I've certainly fought with imposter syndrome before in my life. Uh, Same. I mean, who hasn't? Especially in the workforce, right? Because men have assumed competence when they walk in the room. We do not. We have to work twice as hard, speak twice as loud, and just be as insistent as possible no matter what industry you work in. It's very, very real. And I say that as as a white woman, so I I still have my I got that going for me. Uh, sadly, that is a privilege that I have when I walk into interviews and when people look at my name on my resume. You know, they don't make assumptions. They're just like, oh, that's probably a white person. We'll we'll read this further. But in any so, just something worth acknowledging. But what I would say, you know, and I've I've gone through experiences 
in other professional phases where I was not confident, where I was made to feel like my talents were not good enough, where my talents were not valued, where I was undermined in other experiences. And I had to do a lot of unlearning. I remember having bosses that were really like, if you weren't at your desk, it was like, where is she? And again, that's not an environment that I ever again, and thankfully haven't for quite some time. But so a lot of unlearning. And again, thankfully, by having good colleagues and good managers with positive reinforcements, positive reinforcement is like the fact that there are still managers and bosses and organizations out there that think fear is a valuable tactic that's doing anything for your productivity. It's unbelievable. No, it is not. It is yeah. not. You're right. So a lot of unlearning of that doubt had to happen first. And honestly, I would say, I think my confidence came out of my experiences working at Drexel because I was learning so much, so many things that were new to me. And there was just like a point where I was just on the phone with a client or with the vendor, we were the client. And I was on the phone and I was just talking about things and I was listening to myself and I was like, oh, I know what I'm talking about. I'm good at my job. Oh, that's a good feeling. (laughs) I encourage, like, I really think women are not encouraged to brag about themselves, especially professionally. We're not good at that. But I had those moments where I was like listening to myself and I was like, wow, I'm really good at my job. Oh, I know what I'm talking about. I I learned that. And not only did I learn it, I figured out how to make it better, how to do it better, how to optimize this thing, right? And a lot of my skill in the workplace is because I'm good with people. And that's all my theater stuff. That's all my English major stuff. Because if you get the right people in the room, it's not hard to solve a problem. It's not hard to figure something out. And I'm pretty, I'm not pretty good. I am good at that. I am good at knowing, okay, this person has these skills. This person knows this. Let's put them all together. I don't care about the yes or whatever drama had been happening between departments. I just want to figure this out and let's move forward. And so I've always been really good at that part of it. But, and that was really where I realized a lot of my skill was in was just figuring by figuring out people, you can figure out a lot of other things that happen professionally. Right, right, right. Yeah. That was something that I was, that clicked for me. That I was like, oh, I am a problem solver through my understanding of people and those dynamics and Mm. walking into a room and reading the energy. So yeah, all of those things really, really came into play. Emotional intelligence, right? That's one of those skills that you can't take it in a business course. But (laughs) So that was really a transformative professional experience for me because it took a little nudging for my boss to be like, you're good at this. And then eventually I was like, hey, wait, I'm really good at this. (laughs) And so yeah, I really that experience was was pretty darn impactful for me just in terms of believing in my own abilities and just growing my skill set and knowing that like yeah I can do this. I did an exercise when I was prepping for my job at Swarthmore that I ended up getting was I just went through the job description and looked at what these are the qualifications, these are like the necessary skills and I just wrote out next to them like here's how I do that. I can like here's an example of when I've done this or like Oh yes, I I've done that, but in sort of a and I just looked at it and I was like, yeah, I'm qualified for this job, so I'm going to apply for it. So I think that like everybody has so many so many transferable skills, and I, I think we doubt ourselves so much if everything doesn't line up exactly the way that it's you think it's supposed to. 
but actually you've got most of it. I guarantee you if there's a job that you're interested in or a career track that you're interested in, do that exercise. Like see, like take the doubt out, put it on paper and see, oh, actually I am qualified for this. I actually can do this. I was proud of myself in a evaluation. It was something that I was like, I would have never said this five years ago in an evaluation. You know, I was always like, oh, I think I did okay this year. And this term, I was pretty proud of this project. And keywords think and pretty. Yeah, right. I undersold myself, but I had an evaluation where I put in specifically that the reason why these things happened was because I was the person behind the wheel. I was driving it and that's why it was successful. Like I gave myself credit. And not that you should ever feel like I am the only person who is ever capable of doing this job. And if I leave, like that's not it. That's not what I'm saying. But it's important to acknowledge like this was good because I did it. (laughs) So yeah, I definitely... You can own it. Yeah. My confidence in my abilities definitely um, grew quite a lot working at Drexel. And again, no person is an island. I worked with very, very smart people who shared their knowledge openly. That's another really great, important piece. If you want to go anywhere in your career, like siloing information off, not being collaborative, like that doesn't help anybody. Sharing information and working with other departments, working with other people, being open and communicative about things, it only helps everyone at the end of the day. Silos are a big thing that you hear in in higher education, probably in other industries as well. And then I've just, I'm like the anti-silo. I'm like, nope, everybody, let's talk about the same thing at the same time because we're all going to figure it out eventually. So let's just, let's just talk. All right. Let's, let's get ahead of this before it becomes a problem. So that's really where I would say that that's where I'm like, yeah, that's, that's my confidence. That's, that's what I know how to do. Yeah. I like that. I think it's important to be reflective of the work that has led to the confidence. Because Mm. it's like, you've done these things, Rachie, like you can back this up. You're like, well, here are the examples of the times when I've done that. And I think oftentimes there is a lot of fear that keeps us from remembering plenty of examples of times when we've been able to complete something or be capable or fully able to take on a particular challenge. So it's just nice and refreshing to hear you say, you know what, I'm going to acknowledge my abilities. I'm going to acknowledge that also I have people around me who are supportive and who believe in what I'm able to do. And it really makes me think about success and how there are different ways we choose to define it. So in your own Rachel way, how do you put success into your own words? Would you say it's having the great team, being in a place where you have now been able to acknowledge that confidence because you've worked hard and you've gotten here. How do you define it? You know, it's such an interesting thing because I've also had to spend a lot of time with myself and in therapy to find (laughs) success just beyond what you do as your job. So a lot of me, success for me in a lot of ways personally is like, can I be with myself? Do I like being with myself? Like that to me is like, that's a big part of of what I would say is personal success is that I can be with myself. I know myself. I know what feelings are when they arrive. And I, I try to figure out how to deal with them or to at least be with them and not, not fight against certain things. So that personally, you know, that's how I like to look at success. And career-wise, 
I think it's a very delicate balance because again, I think in our culture, we are very much taught that what you do is who you are. And so we can tangle up a lot of our personal value in how well we're doing career-wise or how work went today. And so I think it's, again, setting up those boundaries and knowing yourself and knowing that like, okay, if I messed up a project at work, which I've done, again, be transparent about it. Tell your boss when you mess up because they'll figure it out eventually. (laughs) (laughs) Knowing that like, okay, I messed up at work today. That doesn't mean like I'm a worthless piece of shit. Like it's... So that's an important thing. And I, I wouldn't say success is quite as much about, I mean, titles are nice. It's, it's nice when you get, like, I feel good about the fact that I have director as my title. That, like, I earned that. That feels good. Um, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to be like, the titles don't matter. It's just an honor to be nominated. Like, no, that's not real. <laughs> but <laughs> I think it really depends on the industry. But for me, you know, working in higher education, I like the institutions that I've worked for. Their values are important to me. Like I would not feel good about working at an institution that didn't take COVID seriously, that stayed open the whole time and didn't mandate masks on campus. So that's it. Like I I try to think about success in the way of like, do I feel good about the place where I'm working? Do they, did my values align? And again, that's higher ed is nonprofit. That's a very nonprofit thing to be saying. Someone who maybe would be listening to this that works in a corporate sphere is like, oh God, these nonprofit people, get over yourselves. (laughs) Those values are everything. Yeah. That's the common denominator. That's community too. That brings everything full circle. Right. And so that, that always, it's interesting. I sort of, in a lot of ways, kind of look at success around like the loss of my dad, because I just wanted him to know that, that we got to the other side. Our family struggled a lot in a lot of ways. And we're thankfully me, my mom and my sister were like, we're all okay. You know, we all have stable jobs and good careers. And I just kind of like, for me, that feels like success that like, we got to the other side. We we're okay. Mm. And so that just, I wish he could see it. Like, that's really, that feels like success to me, that I don't struggle anymore, that I don't, I know where my paychecks are coming from. I don't need, like I can put everything on auto pay, which again, I know is a deep privilege. But to me, like for someone who grew up in Norristown and and didn't come from a lot, like that feels like success. So for some people, like they're like, yeah, I have a beach house and I have these, all of these great things and all this and that. Just for me, it's, it's the not having the weight of financial fear on my back feels like success. And again, God, that's so American that we have to measure things that way. Well, it isn't, it isn't. I think it's food and shelter, right? I mean, at the end of the day, we want to survive. And it's not like you're saying, I get to be financially free and also save 50 grand. You didn't say that, you know, you're Mm -hmm. saying like, I can survive. I can take care of myself. Like that's what I'm hearing. And that makes total sense to me. Yeah. And that was such an experience for me, like with my family and money is like such a thing. My in-laws are like this, the most wonderful people in the world. I love them so, so much. And it's just such a different experience. Like, you know, they're very like financially stable. They're not like well off by any means, but they're just like, they made good choices and learned how to save and they're not, they don't live extravagantly or whatever, but yeah, I just, I remember my husband, like, cause I get so 
like finances stress me out so, so deeply because I've been pretty financially responsible since I was a teenager. And so I just remember him like, cause I've been worried about losing jobs before because of things that happen in our, you know, both with COVID and, and when we all graduated into the recession and, you know, money, I'm just, I get so stressed out about it. And I remember my husband telling me, he's like, well, you have a safety net. And I was like, oh, oh, that's not a, that wasn't a thing that I had experienced. My parents gave me so much love and, and comfort and joy, but you know, money was tough growing up. That is no slight to them whatsoever. But that was a new experience to be like, oh, there's also this, the safety net. That was a new experience for me. Makes sense. It makes total sense. I think it all stems from kind of, I hate to say like where you come from, because I know that's not received well by everyone in general, but in the sense of you come from your experience, maybe you could say like, it's not good. It's not bad. It's not like right or wrong. It's just, this is what I know and what I was told and things that I saw, what I knew to be normal. And then, you know, you have to adjust in your own independent capacity and that's its own challenge. And I think we're all doing that literally all the time. <laughs> you know, you not just wake up and figure it out. Like that's not how that works. Yeah. And no one does that in college and they really should tell you. <laughs> like there should be a saving class and how to prepare finances and, you know, and they don't do that. Nope. They sure don't, but they make you take like, yeah, sure. I needed Calc 1. No, I did not. I don't know how to pay my taxes. Come on. No, there should be totally like into the real world. It should be like one credit when you're a senior and just like get the building blocks to like the skeleton of a savings plan. And then like when you go to your first job, you, I don't know why. Learn your W-2s, learn your 1099s, learn how to write off expenses. Like we should know that at 21. We have all the debt, just like (laughs) student debt, credit cards. But yeah. That's the thing. Like you're literally like you're jumping into debt no matter who you are. Well, we all know some people that don't have it, but it's just like, I don't know. I don't understand why they don't think it's worth it. It's not like you didn't pay to go to school. Like they should be. Anyway, whole another conversation. I think our big takeaway here is that we have, we talked about values and boundaries and, you know, recognizing the vibe and the energy in a room and whether you want to be there. And if you don't, don't force yourself into situations you don't need to be in know your boundaries and who you are. And I think you end up doing things you like doing, which is what it sounds like you did. Yeah. And to just trust that you'll land on your feet, that things are winding paths. Again, the way that I got here was very winding as you heard me talk about. And so just know that wherever you're going, you'll figure it out and you'll know yourself and trust yourself that if something doesn't feel right, that you can move on from it that you'll be able to figure it out. And it is important to have people to lean on. Again, I think American individualism is a terrible thing. We need each other. We are each other's keepers, right? We are each other's keepers. Like Tanika is such an important friend to me because we just like, it is not hard for me to call her and say, I need you and vice versa, right? I think so many people are afraid to say, I need you. I need help. I'm not strong enough for this or I don't have all the answers. And that's something that I struggle with in my career too, is like saying like, oh, I don't know. Like, it's actually okay to say, I don't have the answer right now. Let me get back to you. So yeah, I, I really think that leaning on other people is important. And, and that's why I talked about relationships too, like building good relationships in work really matters that if you can take care of other people, then they'll take care of you. And it gets you a long way. <laughs> relationships, I'm telling you, it's everything. Right. right. They are everything. Again, that's all my theater. It really means a lot. 
We are going to have to do a whole episode, like bringing together all the theater points because that you're not the first person to say this. And Tanuke and I have done theater Tanuke more than me, but that's something we constantly go back to. Like we've learned so many things from those experiences, even just the people, good and bad. You know, I think a lot of, gosh, what would you call it? Like core strengths can really blossom out of theater, no matter what part of it you're in. One of the most important career things that I learned from theater is about the importance of understanding other people's jobs. Mm. So, oh, good. Point. Yeah. When you're an actor, you better be friends with that stage manager. You better be nice yeah. to the techies in the tech booth. You better be nice to the people and understand how hard the work is for the people in the costume shop and the people building your sets because they're there to make you look good. The show does not go on if, you, if they are not there. And actors are made to feel like they're the most important, but they're not actually. It's it's it takes a whole team effort of everybody on the production end of things to make it work. And I have also found that working in my field, right? So if I manage the strategy of certain marketing and communications directives, this, that, and the other thing, it's really good that I understand how hard of a work it is to build a website. And it's good that I understand the times limitations of graphic designers and you know how the people that work behind the scenes on the technical aspects of things with SEO and all of that, understanding or the communication flow of the admissions office and how many emails have to go out and all the different tags and the different technologies that like it's totally you have to not just to like know it because you're the one that has to do it but if I respect that person's time and I understand how hard their job is and I understand the the aspects of what they do it's easier for me to communicate with them it's and it's easier for us to work together and it also shows that I have respect for what you do and you'll you'll get that respect back you'll get that collaboration back from them they'll be way more likely to do a favor for you if you're not like yeah, you can build a website for me by tomorrow, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. Or there's always somebody that just asks and asks and asks. And there's like, you know, the taker, that taker personality or like the looking for free stuff personality. And it's just like, oh my God, you have to filter them out. <laughs> oh, Or you teach them, right? Or you respond differently and they learn from knowing you that that wasn't the way to go. And that's how, not how you communicate or, you know, whatever it may be. Exactly. But you're totally right on the team aspect. That's another great point, must say. But is there anything you want to leave people with? Maybe you can share either your handles where we can find you on Twitter or social media and or a little tidbit that you'd like people to remember as we get ready to close on out. If you want to find me on Twitter, you certainly can. Although (laughs) the things that I tweet about are not remotely related to any of this. It's a lot of pop culture nonsense, you know, talking about like the housewives and bachelor nonsense. So if you're into that, <laughs> follow me on Twitter. But really, I talked a lot about my dad, I would say I would just share his advice, which is just that remember, you're the one behind the wheel. Word. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was very entertaining. I must say, I must say. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for sharing insight and your own experience and your journey and just for graciously sharing wisdom with our listeners. Thanks for joining us on Angled. If you'd like to re-listen or hear more episodes, you can find us on Spotify, Stitcher, and iTunes under the name Angled Podcast. You can follow us and get in touch with us on Instagram as well. Our handle is at Angled Podcast. 
Thank you so much. See you next time. What's your angle?